Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Is This Really Better Than Nothing Would Be? I'm your host Patrick, joined in studio with my co-host Kelly. Hello. 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 <laughs> so luckily there hasn't been a huge deluge of news since our last episode, but there was the State of the Union, uh, so we're going to talk about that a good bit tonight. Um, I don't know what the major takeaway from the State of the Union address is, but I guess the main newsmaker was when Trump said that America will never be a socialist country, and depending on where you are on the political spectrum, that set off a huge uproar for whatever reason. Total red meat for his base, and I guess it was meant to be an attack towards the so do socialist Democrats. Was uh, that the major newsmaker, or was Joshua Trump the major newsmaker? Joshua Trump was the major newsmaker to me because he embodied how I felt about the speech. It was so boring. I mean, it was honestly just... It was too long, and I, I left with not knowing what the State of the Union was, to be honest with you. Um, there's certainly no way that he could have spun anything he said into saying that the State of the Union is unified. <laughs> and for anyone who hasn't been paying attention, Joshua Trump is the little boy who was bullied for his last name being Trump. No relation to the Trump family. And Melania as part of her Be Best initiative, invited him to the State of the Union. And, Patrick, what happened there? He passed out. <laughs> <laughs> he was sound asleep. I mean, it's too late for that little kid, to be honest. Probably a very stressful event. <laughs> so I, the, the really funny thing about it, in my view, is that he... I mean, it's not funny that he was bullied. But, ironically... He's bullied for his last name being Trump, and now he's being hailed as a resistance hero for falling asleep during Trump's speech. So, you know, it's a major, major redemption story for Joshua Trump. Honestly, anyone who can fit a nice nap into their schedule, is, even in those types of events, if you can fit a nap in there, that's, that's pretty heroic. I, I appreciate anyone who's got good <laughs> napping ability. <laughs> yeah, I can't take naps at all, so it is impressive. Yeah. Uh, another crazy story in the news right now is the whole Jeff Bezos and National Enquirer. Um, and, you know, Trump will end up being tied up in this, certainly, because of his connection to David Pecker. And just his his close tie and his, like, lauding of the National Enquirer to begin with. I've always thought this, that the way Trump loves conspiracies and the way that the National Enquirer loves to run with just straight up falsehoods. I mean, Hillary Clinton has had two months left to live for like seven years now, according <laughs> oh to them. <laughs> Crew yeah, Bill I, keeps her alive. I used to collect those stories when she was running 
when during the campaign, it was like every every week it was like Hillary Clinton has three months to live. Hillary Clinton has two weeks to live. Hillary Clinton is on her deathbed, <laughs> and she's still kicking. She's somehow each still week, kicking. Each week they'd have this different picture of her looking just like like a corpse, like she. <laughs> <laughs> like some doctored <laughs> picture of her looking terrible oh man <laughs> she's like going strong but my my favorite part my favorite thing about the national Enquirer is just their their alien stories and they always used to have or you know every now and then they'll have this picture of you know area 51 alien autopsy revealed or whatever so i'm thinking now that trump is president he should be able to declassify any and all relevant UFO information that the government has. And I, 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 the only way that I'm voting for Trump in 2020 is if he goes on Twitter and says, stay tuned to the National Enquirer next week because there will be some huge news about aliens and what our corrupt deep state government has been hiding. And then... The National Enquirer publishes all of this released information about aliens. I'd be so for it, to be honest with you. I think, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much of Trump's corruption or whatever I'd be able to forgive, but just knowing about aliens would would make me pretty happy in some way. <laughs> and I guess we, we finally have the president with the proper connections with the National Enquirer to right. do something if about it. If anyone can make it happen, it's Trump. Yeah, I mean, and he's just not delivering. Yeah, that's the most disappointing thing is all of the conspiracy theories that Trump entertains. I just feel like, you know, he's not one to get his intelligence briefings, but certainly we would know about UFOs by now if well, there was really. It's really disappointing to think about. That is the most disappointing thing is that. Is he? Does he lack so much curiosity? Like we are, we already know he's not a curious person. He doesn't read books. He doesn't do his intelligence briefings, like you said. He doesn't care to learn how government works. He doesn't care to learn anything really. But is he, does he lack such? Does he so much lack curiosity that he doesn't even want to know the truth about aliens? You know, so like your first presidential briefing when there's there's a joke that presidents get their briefing and then, you know, they go through the files and then someone comes up and like, here's the Saudi Arabia file. And then the president goes, oh, shit. So that explains it. Well, where's the UFO file? We need it. I mean, clearly Trump, Trump and the National Enquirer are not going to release the Saudi Arabia file. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, did Trump even... I, I, that's the most... Yeah, that's the most disappointing thing to me, is that he didn't even... Trump, in all of his silly ways, didn't... There's no way he asked to see the UFO file. That is disappointing. Well, anyway, so, back to the main newsmaker, or... Joshua Trump? Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, you, oh, you mean socialism. Yeah, socialism. So, oh, man, this debate is going to... It's not going to be handled. And it's not really even a debate. Like, that's the thing. There's no, there's no faction or contingency out there that I can point to 
except for maybe a very small fringe of really communists, because they do exist. Yeah, I'm sure there are Marxists, communists out there who are, you know, vouching for position in the Democratic Party. But fringe is the operative yeah, word. Fringe is the operative word here. And, you know, anytime we bring up a socialist program, it gets met with just the most vociferous attacks and people will just take it all out of proportion whereas in reality there people are many don't know what people don't even know what socialism means right and even people who claim to be or want socialism probably don't even you know they probably aren't even using the term correctly but for the sake of you know we're not talking about workers controlling all of the means of production as in the ways of communism right that's not really Clearly not <laughs> right that's not really what i don't think anyone is envisioning although you know some of that theory you you could make the argument that some of that theory does drive some of the initiatives behind how labor unions you know aim their negotiations and you know that that's a different argument in and of itself but on a macro sense of our economy and how our country operates there there are tons of situations where people's taxes basically contribute to the greater good of society i mean the the obvious you know the obvious example of this people always talk about the roads or the police or the fire fire stations, the military even. But I think the biggest one that no one really brings up, and I guess the reason people don't talk about it is because it's mostly controlled by state governments and paid for by property taxes as opposed to, you know, wages and the federal government is the public school system. And the rewards that we've reaped from a society as a society from the public school system i don't think anyone is except for a select few of people who are you know trying to transition us away to a completely charter school driven education system but i don't think anyone is sitting around eschewing the way that public school systems or that they even exist in america Right. And if, if people are, that's really screwed up, right? That's the ultimate insult, is that I'm so rich that I can buy my own education. Screw you. <laughs> Get rich so you can buy your own as well. I mean, exactly. no one wants to live in a society where that is. And, you know, as we talk about some of the initiatives that the Democratic Party leaning toward or putting forward as is the case with Cortez's Green New Deal, which we will talk about in, you know, I kind of want to talk about it in pretty exhausting detail tonight as much as we can. But, you know, the argument is, is that some of those things are for the greater good. And maybe there does need to be some chipping in for environmental quality standards you know or just the way that we tackle pollution 
or the way that we tackle income inequality or the way that we tackle some of the safety nets behind how we handle um you know medicare in this country or healthcare in general now we can make the argument that and a lot of people do that the free market can handle all of these problems and that would be an argument worth entertaining if that were even how america has ever handled most of our situations i mean it's it's really we really don't have a fair playing field for how some of our largest corporations who have the market making ability in this country we don't we don't have quite the fair playing field as to where you can say that innovation that will help society writ large can happen in a totally free market system it just can't because it's certainly it's not profitable for some companies that operate in an entirely free market system to you know put forth those sorts of resources and make those sorts of opportunity costs and we have a system in place now with the way we handle pharmaceuticals and technolo technological innovation where we have sort of a, a patent system that's you know it, it's kind of uneven as to how who are we allowing to exploit the rents from patents and who should be benefiting and is there some function that government can play in you know not allowing things like insulin for example to be seven hundred dollars where you know the the theory behind why insulin is seven hundred dollars is that these pharmaceutical companies have taken all of the risk even if they did use some publicly available research therefore they deserve to be compensated for their risk and also the sales of their insulin or whatever drug you want to use this example for needs to be appropriate to finance existing projects that are in a pipeline that may never come through so that's sort of the you know the pharmaceutical perspective but even in acknowledging that that's not it's not entirely a free market as to how that stuff happens and if it were a free market you know i i, I don't know if we would get some of the innovations that we do as a society so that being said the green new deal has been proposed by congresswoman cortez and you know before i i dive into it before we start taking up individual points of it um i think it's worth pointing out just sort of the situation with congresswoman cortez and you know she's she's a 29 year old first term congresswoman in probably what's going to be a very safe seat for her and she's in there and she's sort of the the young wild-eyed idea ideologue that millennials are finally starting to see um a celebrity in some of their ideas champion and there's a good and a bad in that right um the good is we're probably going to start having some conversations that maybe even we've never would have had if we had not had a young person in Congress. 
And so I think that's a, that's a pretty good thing. Um, now, with youth comes inexperience, and with inexperience comes, you know, mistakes and gaps in information. And sometimes I think she is given a pass from the left when she, you know, displays misinformation. And this happened recently uh, in a hearing where, you know, they were talking about campaign finance and dark money, etc., etc. And as it, this video went viral of her basically making all these points about how if you were a bad guy and you wanted to do bad things and you wanted dark money to help you do it, you could do so. And many of the points in the sentiments were pretty well taken, but the issue is, is that the video that went viral was an edited video, and it didn't show the rebuttal where one of the guys on the panel who was being questioned basically pointed out that her numbers were either way off or just outright, you know, not representative of how what she was talking about works. And so I think it's important that people on the left, you know, call this stuff out when they see it, or else we run the risk of seeding veracity and seeking out of information to people who are only going to use the full context for inflammatory and steering of the conversation in ways that we might not, they might not want it to happen. So what I'm saying is, call her out when she's wrong. She should not be infallible. Yes, but... I mean, I totally agree with that, but I don't see liberals doing that. Why? Because conservatives don't call Trump out. Right, and that's a fair so point. So we're, we're, li we're living in this political environment where, you know, celebrity status and you know, popularity... And whatever excites people, you know, matters more than truth. So why would they call her out? Well, there's a, there's a reason why I brought that up. And it's because in order for some sort of sweeping, society-changing initiative to be communicated effectively through all the different layers and levels of government and society and business the people who are proposing it and the people who are responsible for crafting the legislation need to take excruciating efforts to have command of the facts and i think that's the difference between um you know, wild-eyed, idealized uh, things that are just simply mission statements on paper and things that can, as opposed to something that can actually be communicated to departments and state governments and local governments and candidates effectively. And I think that's pretty... It's a pretty important sentiment to carry forward as we analyze... The Green New Deal because all the Green New Deal is right now is basically just uh, I mean it's a talking point agenda thing and what I guess what I'm concerned about is that 
So we've, we're basically starting to see the Democratic presidential candidate field fill out. And the Green New Deal is going to be hovered over their head like a guillotine. I know, it really is. That's scary. And I don't think that that's fair in that a lot of what is in the Green New Deal, A, is not going to be within the purview of the federal government to begin with. And B, it's not spelled out in a completely actionable way. Right, it's not It's not policy. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not, not policy. It's not even close. It, but it is, they're, they're pointing to it as a guiding of the conversation, okay? And, and to that extent, I actually 100% agree with that sentiment, that we should be having conversations about where is the technology of the future? And I think that's my, my hang-up with the Green New Deal, is a lot of it is... Um, Goals that will probably never come to pass, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of it is putting the cart before the horse, in my view. And the reason I say that, and this gets back to the original conversation of America will never be a socialist country versus are we even completely a capitalist country to begin with. But... And I, I know that the Green New Deal makes amends for this in certain parts of it. But, you know, we have some programs in place already that are not being utilized by the people who would benefit them the most. And the way that some of these programs, for example, one program that I want to bring up is the... Uh, the FHA 203k loan, okay? So what this is, this is a, a home for, um, typically it's for first-time home buyers, but I'm pretty sure anyone can use a 203k loan. Um, it, it just matters how much you get to put down if it's your first or subsequent home after that. But this is a program that's perfectly designed because part of it is a $6,000 energy efficiency grant. Now, this is a program that's designed to take a home that requires repairs or updating, and, you know, you can buy any home that you might quote-unquote call a fixer-upper, and you can use this type of loan to streamline the repairs into the cost of the loan. You pay off the purchase price of the house, and two months later... You've got a house that you bought for thirty grand. You put forty grand worth of repairs into it, and now you've got a livable house. Okay, that that's obviously a very rare example because thirty grand houses, few and far in between. But the point is this: is that some of these programs that could be helping to carry along a green agenda already exist, but they're not attractive to the people who would most benefit from using them. Many millennials right now are in this... I don't want to say it's a trap, but I just know this from my own experience where people 
who I've known through college or, you know, just who I've interacted with through different hobbies or whatever, they tend to want to live in more expensive cities. Is that not correct? Oh, that's absolutely correct. And it, if it's a trap, it's a totally self-made trap. Like, it's, it's totally, like, people tra- chasing this Instagrammable dream of living in a cool city when they don't have to. Right. And that's, that's the problem here, is in order for us to affect change like this, we need to change our consumption patterns as human beings, as individuals in a society. And the reason I brought up the, you know, living in expensive cities is because one of the the things about the Green New Deal is this, you know, recommendation that we essentially just retrofit every building that's not energy efficient into a more energy efficient building. And I know that when they wrote this document, they didn't mean every single building. But it's going to get brought out in all of conservative media, and they're just going to make fun of the most extravagant points that they can make of simple statements. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Get ready. Right. I mean, they're already doing that. And, you know, to counteract that, I, I just think that we should take the approach that some of these things already exist, and they should work. They can work. But we just need to make the effort to to actually, you know, the people who can most benefit from them need to prove that these initiatives are in demand and going to be profitable. Or I say profitable profitable because, you know, as the decisions come that we're going to shift towards an entirely green energy grid some company is going to have to presumably profit from that or else they will be completely subsidized by the government to make the initial investments. Um, But back to my housing example, you know, millennials aren't buying, you know, they're not moving to parts of the country where they can afford to live and do their part in retrofitting houses to be more energy efficient. And so, you know, X not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I think we still need to get back to that to some extent. We, the, the public consumption patterns need to meet a Green New Deal halfway. I agree completely. And the other part of that is that we have parts of this country that, man, they're just, they're not going to be very receptive to any single part of this. And I know that that shouldn't be a reason not to try it. And I'm not putting it out as that. But I just want to think about, like, sort of the uh, the technological advancement curve that certain parts of our country are in. And sort of like, what is the reversion to the mean for, say, an economy in uh, the Gulf Coast to shift from basically the point where the entire, probably regional economy in some of these places 
is run by fossil fuels to imagining that economy where the fossil fuel production cycle is no longer the dominant supplier that it is now. I mean, what's referred to as an incumbent industry, that's what the fossil fuel industry really is in these places where they are... I mean, it's, it's even at the point where... I know this from experience, where some of these fossil fuel companies are educating the workforce, right? They're buying schools and paying for the education of, you know, high school graduates. That is just such a level of ingrainedness into a society that it's going to be, I, I just, it's hard to imagine where you make that, that pivot, okay? Like, I know that part of the Green New Deal is that we're going to re, I mean, just, it's just generally stated that substantial job training is going to be part of it job retraining in fact that's easy to say on paper but it's very difficult to say hey your industry that your whole family has worked in for the entirety of you know going back to your great grandfather it's not going to be here in two years um and so your entire way of life is about to change and here's these uh, wind turbines that we're about to train you to install. I guess on an individual level, it's probably something that you could potentially sell. But it's just the, uh, as human beings and as certainly as Americans, we tend to base our expectations and certainly our votes and the types of people that we believe in, we base it upon past experience and what our expectations are of anything that challenges our comfort and way of life. It's going to be met with hostile resistance. So back to how does this revert to the mean in the Gulf Coast? I'm just concerned that in the pursuit of... The Green New Deal, if it were to work out in, in really perfect fashion, right? Because if it were to meet every goal laid out in the Green New Deal, I'm concerned that the Gulf Coast of America becomes the new Appalachia, right? I mean, coal mining's not coming back. And so just go to West Virginia and see people who are stuck behind. And obviously, those people should be targets for retraining. So, yes, they, I mean, you can't. You can make progress happen more slowly, but eventually, if the world does not turn over, I mean, does not transition to these more efficient ways of life, then, I mean, it, it's just inevitable. Right. Like eventually, these jobs will die. Right. I mean, it's just a matter of is it going to happen sooner or is it going to happen later? And that's that's good. I mean, it's that's why I know that the past 10 minutes was me pointing, painting the darkest picture of it. But I really am not as down on it as as it appears. 
I just I just think it's worth you know really taking the view of who stands to lose from it the most because in any in any economic transaction of large scale you know trade you know country to country trade or even like intra-company trade there's always like the opportunity costs and there's always a winner and a loser and so I just always want to frame it to the point where we at least understand who's going to lose <laughs> and the fact that we're in the the infant stages of a green new deal it's important to have those conversations now so that you can plan for them in whatever iteration of this thing comes to pass you know that at least was laid out at the beginning that certain parts of the population are are not equipped to handle this transition in the rosiest way that we'd like to think that they are and ironically the reason that they're not equipped to handle it the reason that they're you know for generations they've all been doing the same job is because they haven't really had a choice right because you said that these companies come in and they specifically train people to do these jobs from a very young age so isn't that what people hate about socialism yeah that you I'm have no choice about what you're going to grow up to do so tell me how is it any different than growing up in these towns where you're expected to work at x factory and you have no other choice hmm that's a good point and so is it not better to give people options people to do other things and giving people ideas that they maybe they can do other things right and i that's what i hope is that whatever jobs retraining there is is it's sort of broad based to the point where it can uh transition from wherever there is need for whatever the next energy industry mechanics there are because one other thing that i'm concerned about with this transition and looking forward to the future is right now um oil refinery is a very labor intensive process it's a very machine heavy process and those jobs are 24 7 around the clock and basically there's always thousands of people doing things i don't know if that level of labor intensity exists in any sort of um, green energy analog to that. I don't know. I mean, I just, like I said, I, I really don't know if there is something that requires so many shifts of people doing so much planning and executing and managing of process flow. Um as there is in the fossil fuel industry. So what I'm saying is the green in, the green energy sector in and of itself might result in some structural unemployment once it gets to the point where some of these things that are imagined are even online. So that's why, you know, you're talking about hopefully they can imagine a better future for themselves. And I hope well, so too. I, I don't 
mean better. I just mean more options. Right. Because right. is that not what people hate about socialism? That you don't have a choice in how you live your life. And the way you describe this to me, it sounds like they don't have a choice. Like they're they're groomed from a young age to go work at X Factory. Yeah. And, and that sounds an awful lot like not having a choice in how you grow up and what you do as a career. That's true. And it is a lot like that, especially because some of those jobs are so high paying. Right out of high school, people in the Gulf Coast can make $70,000 a year. That is like a life-changing <laughs> yearly salary for some people who, uh, you know didn't have to go to college and take on any debt. That's that's a really good payday. So you dangle that in front of someone who's 17 years old, and you can see why that's going to be a hard battle. Um, and I think the Green New Deal needs to come up with something. And it, it's the thing is, is it's not going to be a monetary thing, I don't think. I, I don't know if the Green New Deal in and of itself is going to be able to come up with something that right out of high school can pay that equivalent simply because i think as the technology for green new for green energies um goes forward those the prices of say things like solar panels um turbines what have you the price of those things we've already seen this and there's a pretty good example of this that's still ongoing with a company called Solar World. And uh, in fact, Trump's tariffs on Chinese imports helped Solar World big time because Solar World was unable to compete in the free market with the Chinese solar panels that were being imported. So I think that's the thing about green energy in and of itself is that more so than something like crude oil that's subject to economic cycles of spike and bust where the price is really volatile and um and you know you you plan production cycles around that and therefore people's wages are tied to production cycle and hiring practices are as well the difference between that and the way that a green technology will work is that the slope the the pressure on prices in the green tech field is going to be constantly downward right solar panels are only going to get cheaper um as the techno and we're seeing this with like elon musk and him making his patents for whatever technologies he uses behind the tesla as a open source for example so anyone can exploit that patent Right, anyone can make the car, a Tesla, and and that's an amazing thing, like that's an amazing societal good that only a rich person can afford to be able to make that happen, right? Because he's already right. made enough money. He doesn't need to to presumably profit any more from something that could benefit society more than it could benefit him, and that's sort of the thing that we need that is going to be hard for America to wrap its head around in. Um, an energy transition because there's there's not going to be like a a physical thing flowing through people's gas tanks that you know needs to constantly be refined and 
I, I just think that just structurally how that reflects itself is that prices will come down and production levels of green energy manufacturers will also have to come down accordingly too. The almighty dollar, well that's what they used to say. One dollar used to be a whole lot, but it's hardly worth shit today. Shit, give me my dollar back, nigga. I'm in the tray, I might as well go buy TSU. But in a larger scheme, right, the whole thing is that we're trying to fix our planet. And that's a noble cause. I mean, one of the things about how and the it, green... Well, let me just interject really quickly. And it is a noble cause. It's undeniably a noble cause. And that's why it's so tragic that it's it's kind of being done in an amateurish way to the point that we're being ridiculed. You know, right. Democrats are are being ridiculed by conservatives because it's coming from an, a little bit of an amateurish place, the way that Congresswoman Cortez presents it. Right, and it's not her fault, specifically. And also, how could it really, at this point, be anything more than amateurish? Because Right, but I thought she had someone helping her with this. She's got, she's got someone from the Senate also as the... Uh, she should have, I mean, the way the Democrats are propping her up as the next hero, they they should have a whole team of people helping her come across as, you know, as intelligent, as knowledgeable well, as humanly possible. Well, to that point, there is a think tank that has been fueling her every position she takes, basically. I think it's called the Sunrise Foundation or something like that. Well, they're not doing a great job well, at some of it. That's the thing is, you know, she's she's 29. She's no, our, no, no, no. I'm not blaming it all on her. I'm not. I'm just, you know, the Democrats are propping her up as this massive hero. Right. And, you know, it sets us up for a little bit of ridicule. Right. And I agree with that completely. Now, the one thing about the mechanism of action for something like this and they've acknowledged it to an extent in the bill itself is that one way that this could be achieved is basically the president in 2020 would have to be a super liberal president um, willing to take a really bold stance and basically declaring an emergency and basically declaring that, uh, you know, climate change is a global catastrophe that's imminent that requires, quote-unquote, mobilization well, to is. World War II levels. Uh, I, I, you know what? You know what's um, what's it, interesting it about that? It is an emergency. What's interesting about that is... Uh, I mean, it, it would theoretically work, right? I mean, if we can do it to race for the atomic bomb, yeah, <laughs> then why can't we do it to race to retrofit our entire energy grid? And in the process of doing something like, you know, like how the Tennessee Valley situation happened as part of the, uh, the, the New Deal back then. And so there, it is rooted in logic, right? It is rooted in sort of, you know, some really strong personality 
needs to just come and make this damn thing happen in the form of a presidency or an executive branch. Because the other way of doing it is you need... The Democrats would need to shoot a straight shot for eight years where they take back most of the state houses, most of the governorships, and all three branches of the federal government or else it's just going to be a patchwork and businesses will just flock to wherever they're not being forced to make energy efficient standards which as someone who grew up in south louisiana i've seen this happen where certain states are more prone to work hand in hand with the epa than other states and those other states like Louisiana are gonna somewhat turn a blind eye and let polluters come on in and open up shop in exchange for jobs and that's just the that's just how things roll whenever there's a patchwork of standards so that's why I say they would have to shoot a straight shot as to where all the country is on board and um which i mean <laughs> can yeah. you imagine the entire country being on board with anything no anytime soon we're on the brink of our civilization crumbling right <laughs> i mean, <laughs> I mean like... it's true it's true our, our country i when's the last time our country has been united about something 9-11 is probably the the one thing that I can think of. And look what happened. Right. We went into a, a multi-trillion dollar war because of that. So, so, I don't know. I mean, it's being united even a good thing. It's being united even what we need. I don't, it's so, it's so crazy. I mean, that's the thing about America though, right? It's a, a melting pot of different opinions on how we should handle all of the greatest challenges of society but we have no idea how to be a constructive melting pot. Like, no, we, we certainly lost it's, it. It's just gone. And <laughs> that's what we should be looking for. It's like a dark comedy. And, right. And we're just, on, we're on the brink of total destruction. Soci like our society, not, not the country itself. And to put that in terms of Trump's State of the Union, what are we, what did we leave the State of the Union what did anyone leave the State of the Union united for? Nothing. I mean, what what did we take from it? That illegal immigration is bad, like he's been saying for his entire existence? I and mean, that he hates abortion. Right. You know, not that we need to delve into that this right. episode. But what, what, is that, what does that even get us? First of all, back to the wall. It would... <laughs> the whole thing was, oh, Democrats need to come to the table and be strong on illegal immigration and give me a wall. That's basically what Trump's whole takeaway was. The wall will not solve illegal immigration. Let me repeat that. You know that I'd, I'd like to point out to anyone who might be listening. Are, are you guys aware that there are tunnels underground <laughs> as we speak the wall <laughs> like, even, there, are, there are tunnels going under the border that's how a lot of people get in and even if your argument is <laughs> well it's still better to have one and use it as a tool than not that's fine you can think that if you'd like however that's still not 
and inclusive, but that's still not an exhaustive policy, okay? That's, that does nothing. You're still going to have illegal immigrants. Just accept it. Just accept it. Illegal immigration will never be zero in this country. And for a president to use that as really his only takeaway from an entire State of the Union, it's, it shows just how unimaginative and how unable to imagine anything that could unite a country that this president is. He's unwilling, really. I mean, when has Trump ever been someone to care about uniting Americans? Never. He, he says it. Well, we must unite and secure our borders. What the hell does that even mean? I mean, it, it gets us nowhere, first of all. I mean, the argument is that illegal immigration is depressing wages, and that's really the only argument that people make, and that drugs are coming. Well, drugs are coming through legal ports of entry, first of right. all. Right. I don't know how many times people have to say that, but... Once again, drugs are coming through legal ports of entry. And if you're concerned about wages being depressed and you're not upset about the way that companies basically just don't raise their wages, I mean, it's completely an option. It's completely up to companies to raise their wages. It's completely <laughs> up to American business owners not to hire illegal immigrants. Right. I mean, this is not how the is tangent. That, how is that not the issue? This is not the tangent that I wanted to, to go off on. But just back to the point, Trump's State of the Union didn't leave anybody or any department heads or anybody with any sort of actionable, oh, this is what America should look like in the next year. Okay? It didn't. And I think that's what America... I, I, it's funny to say this now because I used to hear this a lot from people when Obama was president is, oh, people on people, conservatives, I should say, when Obama was president that, oh, this country lacks leadership. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, if that's how you felt about Obama, that's I guess you, you're fair to think that because Obama didn't inspire in you whatever you needed to do to feel like our country was moving forward, unite it. And right now, I, I don't know how 60% of this country does not feel the same way about Trump right now. Um, so in 2020, I don't see that candidate in the field right now. I'll just go on record and say that. Of all the candidates that have declared, I don't see anyone who... <laughs> I'm makes, still rooting for Al Franken to come out of the woodwork. Right. <laughs> and, you know, part of that has to be that whoever that candidate is needs to know how to A, form a directive, and B, explain that directives to actionable departments within the federal government. And C, make sure that their support on state and local levels which is you know that's sort of the problem that we're having right now with a lot of our patchwork systems that are failing us like healthcare for example we're going to talk about healthcare in our next episode um starting a book discussion a book called is it policy and reaction I don't have the book next to me right now, so I'd have to go look for it. But anyway, it's it's an exhaustive. You don't even know the name yeah, of our book. Yeah, I'll put it in. I'll put it in the show prep. 
Um, <laughs> I, I'm only I'm, I'm 20 pages into it, so I just started. I haven't it, but, started reading right. it at all. And this book is basically an exhaustive recollection of how our healthcare system started, where it's been, where it's at. What are some hangups of it? And this is something that I really need to know about, and I'm I'm fascinated to learn more about because you know I am in the health care field currently right so i you know i need to know as much about this as possible both for you know to be politically informed and for my future career and i think i can't wait and i think it's probably the most complex patchwork of inefficiencies that we have as an as americans i mean it's it there's so many different ins and outs of like What's covered here? What procedure can I get is covered here? What's going to... If I get cancer, am I bankrupt? And... Healthcare is... I mean, as Donald Trump put it, who would have thought it was this complicated? It is so freaking complicated. It, right. And we all... The rest of us knew it was complicated, but... <laughs> right. And if for it's Donald really Trump... It's really an understatement to say it's complicated. For all of his faults... For him to put it so plainly, <laughs> I, I mean, it's something that I think, any, I, I just imagine anyone being president, okay, anyone, no matter how prepared you are, unless you had been a senator for 40 years or whatever, and you get your first, <laughs> you know, you get that, that week, that healthcare week comes along, and then after day two, you're just like, what the, f- what is this? <laughs> This is so confusing. I bet any president would say that. I mean... And to go on a quick tangent, that was always my problem with Bernie Sanders and any of these people who think that Medicare for all is so easy. Right. You know, because it is really, really complicated. And just saying, just saying, let's give it to everyone. I mean, this is going to be a subject for our whole other podcast. But, you know, just making these easy statements is a pipe dream. Right, and one thing about Medicare for All, because that's that's certainly a debate right now, is to the best of my knowledge, there are like five different versions of a Medicare for All bill floating around the House of Representatives, none of which are probably going to turn out to be anything actionable anytime soon. But something I think people should realize, because we saw this in a Kamala Harris town hall on CNN, where she brought it up. Oh, did you actually watch that? I missed yeah, it. Yeah, I watched it. And apparently awesome. a lot of people watched it. And she said something about, let's just do away with private insurance. And <laughs> Oh, I remember hearing about that. Right. That's ridiculous. And, you know, whatever is sentiment that was supposed to convey, I don't know if people realize how many jobs are affected okay. by the healthcare insurance industry. It, it, I th- I don't know I don't know this for a fact I'd have to look into this but I think it's probably the top five employer in America. Isn't isn't healthcare insurance one of the top? I might be totally wrong, but isn't that like the main industry in Nashville right now? Yes, I think isn't, I think that's correct. Remember when you asked me why people in Nashville have all this money? Like, what the hell do they do? And I was like, you know, I don't know. I have no and it, clue. And I think it's healthcare, and that's because Vanderbilt has. You know that hospital, but I mean, and, is it is specifically like healthcare insurance stuff, right? Well, you got to think about it. Anywhere there's healthcare, right? right and anywhere right. there's a large, I, I would like to see the numbers in a was it Riley Charlotte? I think is the area that they're calling the the medical research triangle. 
I would like to see the numbers as to how many jobs are in straight up just like healthcare practitioner and how many are in healthcare insurance and something we need to do all this we're gonna do all this background research for when we actually do the healthcare show but we'll be very well informed i promise but the main takeaway is and this is just something that you know it almost sounds like a liberal pipe dream but it it really is just the honest to god truth no matter how you want to spin spin it but americans are unhealthy well, that's that's the main that's the main problem with our healthcare. No, 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 it's not a liberal pipe dream at all because liberals don't want to touch this subject. No one wants to touch this subject. Right. Everyone is afraid of saying it. I don't know why. People want to compare us to Europe and Canada and whatever and be like, "Oh, well, if they can have um socialized healthcare, then so can we." I mean, have has anyone compared the rates of chronic disease in those countries to America? That's what I want to know. I'm That's sure my they first have. question. I'm sure those studies exist. Like the disease, the chronic disease burden in America versus, you know, Northern Europe. Right. And two points about this that I want to make. Americans need to uh, take health care into their own damn hands first. And that's, that is a very conservative idea. Right. That's a very Republican idea. Personal responsibility. And I'm all about it. I think that if you are capable of making healthy choices, if you can afford to go to a gym, if you can afford... Well, on that d- note, on can you afford <laughs> to go to a gym, something I want to bring up is this concept that I'm really just finding out about. And I know that it's a fairly new concept... I think the term actually only started being used in 2006, but accountable care organizations, um, I'm presuming it's a form of insurance where, well, it seems like it's sort of like a combination where um, essentially what happens is they get paid only if people get better. That seems, let me repeat that. Yeah. (laughs) They get paid only if people get better. That should be the fundamental basis of our healthcare right. system. And I right th- there. And when I heard about this, I mean, to me, it's like, that needs to be 80% of the way our healthcare system works. And I think there is, there there's the studies that have been done on it um, in a, a standard period of time where a program like that was enacted compared to whatever the different programs are um costs did rise but it rose by like half of what the costs rose for any other sort of program and i'm really gonna have to look into the numbers to see what sort of cost savings hospitals were estimating if a program like this were the primary driver but i know it's very substantial we're talking like 25 30 percent cost savings in healthcare, and the reason is is because healthcare is the one industry that I think pipe dreams should be uh, encouraged, quite frankly. Uh, we need to use all of our technological capabilities that we have to make sure that healthcare kind of becomes, healthcare writ large 
for a society kind of becomes this tiered system. And what I mean by that is like, if you just need a standards doc standard doctor's visit, a checkup, some of this stuff needs to be handled either in-home or online or in some very cost-effective way to where you're not tying up the resources of a hospital to where, you know, hospital beds and actual resources are being used in things that should be handled elsewhere. Because the way it works now is if you put that stuff off, it becomes an emergency room visit. And that's what we need to, to avoid. We need sort of a tiered system where things that can be handled in a more cost-effective manner are handled in that way. Because right now, I don't, I don't see that that happens. And I, back to the point of Medicare for All, could you imagine if doctor's visits were free? I think people would just go to the doctor for anything. Right? I mean, not that that's necessarily a bad thing. But if you could go to the doctor and not get a bill for either your visit or your medicine, either. I don't know if that's necessarily true. There's always this joke about, you know, I don't, <laughs> this is a stereotype, but you know, men don't like going to the doctor and, you know, I don't like going to the doctor, even, even if it's not an expensive visit, like I just don't like dealing with it i mean who does very hmm. few people really like going to the doctor but how much of that is because it costs so much i don't know if that's there's a huge psychological component like what woman wants to get on the scale you yeah know? that's true <laughs> like, like, I, I don't know i mean i just feel i don't like... want to get on that scale that scale is is nastier than any scale i have at home you know yeah <laughs> I guess that's a good point. I just, you know. It's like, I, I don't know if that's even the case. Would people really just go to the doctor for fun? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mean for fun, but just like the slightest <laughs> headache or whatever, you know. Well, who, it takes time. And that's another thing in America. It's like we're always on the go. Everything has to be done in the most expedient way. People are always rushing from one thing to another. People don't even have time to breathe. And you know what? So, I mean, like, why would I want to take time out of my day to go to the doctor if I don't need it? But you know what? The system is not very expedient. Is actually going to the doctor. That's what I'm saying. And, why would well, I want to take I, I know, the time? I know you're, you're making a different point than I am, but what I'm saying is every other system that we interact with on a daily basis is finding ways for technolo technology to make it quicker. Right, and you're trying to say that we should... Right. Yeah, that, I, I understand. Right. Glad that point. I, I understand. <laughs> I'm just saying is there's this huge psychological thing. Like, do people even really like going to the doctor? Money aside. Mm, yeah. So I don't know that your argument that if we had cheaper health care, would people abuse it? I don't know if and that's also, a good argument. Because a system can be abused is should not be an argument against trying to have a system. No, absolutely not. And I... That's a trap that many conservatives fall into, especially when talking about things like food stamps or things like, uh, I don't know. They would probably make the same argument about healthcare that I just made. I just gave them. A, I just gave them an argument. You're welcome. You're welcome, Breitbart. I don't need to need you. Tell 
talk about this this whole episode but this was supposed to be our first episode where we talk about challenges facing science health and infrastructure and we did sort of talk about we talked about all it. three we, of those we didn't really extent. introduce it as we didn't our, introduce our it ship. as the ship that we that we meant to the science health and infrastructure party but the last topic that i want to touch on briefly is infrastructure um, and I know science and infrastructure, and really all three of these, to me, are all interwoven. Because I think one of the things that we're seeing starting to happen with the Green New Deal in the way that they presented it is that people are hopefully starting to understand that your environment and the way you handle your day-to-day operations, the way you commute, the way you interact with the atmosphere, (laughs) the air you breathe, the buildings you live in, all of those things play a, a role in your health. And the one, so I guess the one thing that's being just outrageously taking, taking a, being lampooned from the Green New Deal proposal is I'm really going to have to find the exact wording for it because I know it's not worded the way that conservative media is spinning it but to be fair there was a head nod at the idea that we're going to do away with cars and it it seems like we're going to do away with planes now the substitute for that appears to be an emphasis on high-speed rails. Which I am all about. Like, high-speed train is my fantasy. I really daydream. I daydream about having a high-speed train. Now, one reason we can say that is because of the way that our state is laid out. Right. Tennessee is the perfect environment for a high-speed train. And... I know the economics behind high-speed trains are just astronomical. We're talking like probably close to hundreds of billions of dollars to make these sorts of systems work. And I don't know what, you know, and, and that's why I'm saying it's completely regional as to whether or not these sorts of systems are feasible. Now in Tennessee, just my imagining, just looking at a map of the state, We've basically got a horizontally laid out state where the three main population areas are in easy to to connect straight lines. Yes, it would be so perfect. You could basically just run a high-speed train a mile to the east uh, or a mile to the south of I-40... And it would connect all of your major population hubs. And the thing about it is, I think who would benefit the most from a high-speed train are actually people who live in rural areas of the state 
Right, because they could commute anywhere. You could it commute would, it would to open a home. up their job prospects to any place in the state. Right, and I think that that would just imagining it that would open up a lot of the possibility of living in an affordable area while working in an area where wages are higher. And that is a big issue. To me, that is one of the biggest issues about income inequality, actually. I think if your your paycheck is being eaten up by rent or a mortgage, you've got so little to work with. And so people being able to live in more affordable areas while still commuting to places where job opportunities exist, that's an amazing opportunity that should not be overlooked. And it should not be laughed at either because the people who would most benefit from an infrastructure redesign like this are people who would traditionally laugh at it, honestly. Right. <laughs> I mean, the people who, you know, would traditionally vote against such an idea. Uh, it would probably operate at a huge subsidized loss for quite a long time. And that's just one of those things where you'd be surprised as to how many things that we don't realize operate at losses and we enjoy them either way. And you were talking about like if we got rid of uh, fossil the fossil fuel industry, how um, cities that, that depended on that would become the new Appalachia. Well, I would argue that high-speed train is the antidote. It could be. Because then you could travel anywhere in a matter of minutes and work anywhere anywhere else and yeah. still live in your affordable home yeah um you know and like i said it's completely regionally dependent i think tennessee just has the ideal layout just geographically speaking for a high-speed train and i don't know if every other state has such an easy um path forward as tennessee does and that's why i think it's kind of patchwork and also, I know I know it's such a laughable thing. Like anytime anyone talks about like simply just reducing car usage, but man, the way that we drive as a society, it's it's gonna when people look back in history, they're gonna laugh at how inefficient it is. God damn it! Like, right, it's so inefficient. You spend half your day having road rage. Like yeah. that that's like that's life. It's just sitting in a car being mad. Like it's, life doesn't have to be that. Right. People spend a lot of time behind the wheel of an expensive automobile. That's another thing. Should people really be financing a constantly depreciating asset to the tune of really what amounts to the take-home salary of an average middle-class worker. I don't think so. And I can't imagine... I think even Warren Buffett, unless I've gotten him confused with someone else, but it's either him or... Uh, it might have been Sam Walton behind Walmart who was totally against the idea of buying new cars. One of the two. Warren Buffett's still alive, so I could ask him. <laughs> but, but Sam Walton, I don't think is. But, I mean, it, it really is insane that people buy new cars to me it's crazy that's that's a luxury that is being um i think peddled to people in a way that we thought about the subprime mortgage crisis and how we should have saw it coming that people shouldn't have been buying houses when they couldn't afford them right now people are credit unions um 
And even auto dealers themselves are coming up with creative financing ways to where people with sub 600 credit scores are getting approved for $35,000 new cars. That's insane. I can't I can't explain to anyone who doesn't automatically understand how insane that is. But that's crazy. And it's it's happening like wildfire. And you know, I'm not like anti-car. You know, I, I actually really love cars, believe it or not. I actually I, really love I the don't. way... I don't. I hate driving. Well, okay. If I never had to drive again, I would be the happiest person. I don't okay, mean, that's a lie. I'm naturally mean, grumpy, but I would be a lot happier. I don't mean that I love driving or the fact that anyone drives. I just think that cars as a machine are really beautiful. And oh, well, undoubtedly. I, and, I actually, and I really am appreciative of a well-designed vehicle that being said not as many people should have them (laughs) 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 i think it should you can enjoy looking at something and still not need to have it like well i mean that's the american way though right it's like i gotta have it i see it i gotta have it Anyway, so we've gone on quite a tangent, but even though it was a tangent, um, it, it is something that's being laughed about. It's like, oh, you're going to do away with cars? How could you do that ever? I mean, it's worth, it's worth considering the idea that we do need to reimagine our city planning for pedestrian and mass transit. And cyclists. And cyclist options over... And yes, I mean this over vehicular traffic, especially with the way that things like ride sharing and autonomous vehicles are, you know, cresting the technological curve into being somewhat of the default means by which some people uh, transport themselves. Uh, Man, I, I just... And then with our healthcare situation being the way it is right now, people just need to freaking walk and bike more. It's just that simple. Like, I don't mean this from a liberal perspective. I don't mean this from an environmental standard or, you know, anything like that. People just need to be able to get out and enjoy life more. It's not a hippie prospect. It's not... I didn't get this from the Green New Deal. You... Cities where people can bike and walk and can feel safe in those environments and you can bike from one business to the other and you can drink while you you know you can go from one bar to another on your bicycle that that's the kind of thing that I thought we were promoting health you know <laughs> in moderation yeah every everything in moderation but that's enjoying that's enjoying the works of mankind sitting in your car listening to rush limbaugh (laughs) getting angry about potholes and drivers who aren't moving at whatever speed you want them to move at that's not enjoying life and people are spending probably 40 percent of their waking hours doing that in some cases so I think that's a good way to wrap this up, actually, to to wrap this whole thing up, is that, you know, we're going to have this argument of what is the way forward and uh, what even 
is socialism and what what good is it going to bring us or whatever. The thing that people should be left with an understanding of is that it's not wrong to want a better life. Okay? And the free market, it can give it to us. You know, it can give us technological innovations, but only when it's profitable for it to do so. And sometimes technological innovation has to be harbored harbored through its infancy by the federal government and that's just the truth i mean certain companies need to be subsidized or protected whenever you know the switching cost in economic terms it's an actual term is very high for people to mass adopt something that might be beneficial for society and while that process happens the costs associated with that are often so high that private industries might not be willing to take undertake it but in the long run some of those things could be very beneficial to us so i I just think that the main issue right now and the deal with our state of the union is that some americans just don't want to be better some americans just don't want however Melania wants us to be best. And I think we should all listen to Melania. I think so, too. We should all be best. Be best. And I think that's Don't a good note to leave Don't just be better. On. Be best. Be best. And what what's best than high-speed train? What's and best? And being healthy and exercising and getting yeah. out of your car every now and then. Yeah, or just not even getting in your car to begin with. Just stay off the road. All right, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Citizens of the universe, recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramid. Partying on the mothership. I am the mothership connection. Get down in 3D. Light year group. Get down. Hit it, fellas.